If you have your Bible ready, I'd invite you to turn with me to the 23rd chapter of Luke as we continue to make our way through the gospel according to Luke. Next week, the Lord's Day happens to be what we call Palm Sunday in light of the church calendar, the liturgical calendar. And on the Sunday that the Lord entered into Jerusalem before the Friday of his crucifixion, we read in Luke's gospel that a multitude of his disciples uh, celebrated his entrance. They were lifting up his name, crying out, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. And they spread out their coats on the road as, as the King entered the holy city. In the other gospel accounts, we read that there was also some of those who were celebrating that uh, took palm branches and they, they cut them off the trees and they waved them and they also laid them down on the road with the coats and the king on his colt rode on top of those as he entered into the holy city. <clears throat> it was the triumphal entrance. But in five days' time, according to the predetermined plan and the timing of the Godhead, Remember, you know, God is in total control here. His providence is on display. In five days' time, this same king would be lifted up, not in exultation by his disciples, but raised up between two criminals. He was numbered with the transgressors, as Isaiah prophesied, raised up and nailed to a tree, a wooden cross, a horrific torture device. And that's where we are in our text this morning. The eternal Son of God, who humbled himself and took on flesh, is now at the highest point of his humiliation. Our, our friend, our brother, our Lord, our high priest, prophet, and king, our Savior, our God, the only hope of salvation for sinners is being crushed, that, we might, that he might be an atoning sacrifice for the sins of his people. For our sake, he is being made to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. It is a somber text, but at the same time, beloved, it is a, a hopeful text. And I'm going to read the passage for us, and then after the reading of God's word, we'll pray and ask the Lord to bless our time in it. So if you have your Bible, you may follow along. The word of the Lord, beginning at verse 35 in the Gospel according to Luke, reads, And the people stood by, watching. But the rulers scoffed at him, saying, He saved others, let him save himself, if he is the Christ of God, his chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine, and saying, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was also an inscription over him, This is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who were hanged railed at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds, but this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you enter your kingdom. And he said to him, Truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. That ends the reading of God's holy, inspired, and sufficient word. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, your word is true, and we praise you for preserving it 
and for keeping it for us that we might know what your will is, that we might know who it is that you are and what it is that you have done. We know that it is perfect for making us equipped for every good work, that it, it trains us in righteousness, that it corrects us, that it offers reproof for us, and that it makes us complete. And we ask this morning, Lord, that you would give to us understanding. We do not approach your word in our own strength, thinking that we might understand it by our own natural means. No, Lord, we know that we need you to give to us understanding. And so we pray that you would make this time together profitable for your glory's sake. In Christ's name, amen. So, what we see happening here in the text are different reactions to the king on the cross. God is, he's in control of all of this. You know, prophecy is literally unfolding right before our eyes as we read through the Passion narrative. And Luke is very careful to lay out these reactions and to give us some more detail about them than the other gospel accounts do. What we see is that there is one good and right reaction and there's much that entails that good and right reaction. And then one neutral reaction, if, if we're willing to be generously gracious. And then also there are three bad reactions. And then on top of that, there are, there are multiple groups of people being represented here and supplying the different reactions. So we're going to consider them all in the order that the Holy Spirit inspired Luke to give them to us in. So uh, the first reaction that we see is right there in verse 35. It's what I'm calling the, the watchers. It comes right on the heels of Jesus being lifted up on the cross and him praying at that point on the cross, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. It comes right on the heels of his garments being divided. And we learn in John's account that there's actually, there's four soldiers here at this time who are the ones who are you know, raising them up on the cross and they take Jesus' garments and they divide them and cast lots for his tunic. And that was to fulfill what was written in Psalm twenty-two, eighteen. It's going to be them who offer one of the bad reactions as well. And so in verse 35, we read that there are people who stood by watching. Now Luke is he's careful to note that not everyone in the attendance of the cross were railing at him. Not everyone was persecuting him and tempting him to come down from the cross. We don't see that in Matthew, Mark, and Mostly Matthew and Mark, John's, there's a little bit there, I'll get to that. But there are people who are simply standing by and watching. Sometimes we might hear from pastors or we might read in books that all the people um, who were shouting Hosanna and celebrating as Jesus entered Jerusalem, that they were the same ones who wanted to see him crucified. And it makes for a powerful sermon illustration. But most likely, it's not quite true. Luke notes that at least not everyone in Jerusalem was wanting to see Christ crucified. Not everyone was against him. Perhaps some of those who were excited to see him on what we call Palm Sunday were only caught up like in a mob mentality. And now that the mob mentality has changed to, to killing Christ, maybe they've jumped on that ship too. We don't know. It's certainly possible. But certainly not everyone was looking to kill Christ. The last week, we looked at how there was even a group of witnesses, some of whom were women, we read, who mourned and lamented for Jesus as he made his way to the place of the skull. And John's gospel account would also inform us that at the cross, there are those who did love him, who knew who he was. 
We read this in, in John 19.25. You can turn over there. It's just the next book in your Bible. It's at the end. If you hit Acts or Romans, you've gone too far. John 19.25. And I love to hear the pages of Bible, Bibles turning, so don't worry about that. Um, John 19.25 says, But standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Clopas and Mary Magdalene. And when Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour the disciple took her to his own home. So there's Mary, his, his mother is there, Mary Magdalene, and then a couple other people, and John, the apostle. At least one apostle is present as well. He's the disciple whom Jesus loved. That's how John often refers to himself. And so there's also people standing and watching, not mocking Jesus. Matthew and Mark, again, they only record how the crowd derided him and they wagged their heads as they passed by. It's an allusion to what was prophesied in, in Psalm 22. Let's turn to Psalm 22. It's in the middle of your Bible. Psalm 22 is what we call a messianic psalm. Uh, truly, all of the Bible is about Jesus. In a sense, all everything is messianic about it in that sense, but there are certain texts in the Old Testament that describe exactly what the Savior would be doing in His saving work. Psalm 22 is one of those texts. We'll look at verse 6 through 8. It says, But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who seek me mock me. They make mouths at me and they wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. So it's very much what we just read in Luke's account. Those types of reviling against Jesus were happening. And I would encourage you to make some time, either this evening or maybe sometime between this afternoon and next week, and read all of Psalm 22. It gives us a glimpse of what Christ was enduring on the cross and what he was earning on the cross. There are things that prophetically come true from this psalm. And it even begins, the first line of it starts, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's a familiar saying, isn't it? It's one of Jesus' sayings from the cross. And so this psalm was certainly something that was on Christ's mind while he hung there at the height of his humiliation, his suffering before his exaltation. Luke also records that there were people present who mocked Christ Jesus at well. We read that already. And his gospel account paints the same picture as the other gospel accounts and Psalm 22 of his persecution and humiliation. But he's also careful to note that not everyone in attendance is doing those things. Some stood by, watching. They weren't heaping shame upon Christ. They weren't doing anything positively evil. They didn't do the good that they should have done, though. There wasn't anybody with the zeal of Peter in this moment. They didn't defend him. They didn't speak out against those who derided him. Perhaps, you know, there was some cowardice, some fear on their part, that if they spoke up, they would find themselves suffering along with Christ. Jesus, he, he definitely taught that to his followers on a number of different occasions. And the apostles who took the teaching of Christ and then wrote the rest of the New Testament, they taught that on a number of times as well. That if we follow the Lord, if we speak the truth and proclaim the gospel, we put ourselves at risk. 
2 Timothy 3.12 says, Indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Will be. Now, it's not the sort of risk that we might weigh out our options of and think, oh, well, maybe I'm not going to do this here because the, the risk outweighs the result. There's no room for that. Those who are united to Christ in faith will certainly desire to live a godly life. And so persecution and suffering is something that we should expect to see in our lives. You know, we're not ashamed of the gospel. That's not to say that we'll never make mistakes in this regard. There have probably been times in your life that you've wished you would have spoken up, but you didn't. There have probably been times in your life that you looked back upon evaluating it, and you wished that you would have been more bold in that moment. I know that I've had that, that exact experience a number of times, on more than one occasion. We read just a few weeks ago that Peter denied the Lord three times. This person who was so zealous, who always seemed to just act before he thought sometimes. But he denied the Lord three times. And in that third denial, prophecy was fulfilled and Christ gazed upon him and he wept. He knew that he didn't do what he should have done. And John Calvin said, A dog barks when his master is attacked. I would be a coward if I saw that God's truth is attacked and yet would remain silent. He's right about that, of course. Are we, are we to fear what men can do to us? We aren't. Nothing can happen to us apart from the will of God. And we have the comfort of knowing that the will of the Lord is always for our good. Romans 8, 28 says that God works all things together for the good of those who love Him and are called according to His purpose. Yet, we're often cowards. Sometimes, you know, not saying anything at all is just as bad as going along with those who are doing evil. Now, of course, you know, the, the situation that we have in Luke is different than the situations that we find ourselves in when it comes to evil being done to the Lord. We'll never have the opportunity to be like deer caught in headlights as God the Son is tortured before us. When, when Christ comes again, He'll come not in His humiliation. He'll come in glory and in power and every knee will bow as He consummates His kingdom and He ushers in the eternal age. But there was, in a very true sense, no stopping what was going to happen here at the, these events at the place of the skull. Everything was happening according to the plan of God. The, the event of the cross and what happened after it all were the point of Jesus' first advent, of his first coming. He, he came into the world, born of a virgin, lived a sinless life, to die as a substitute on the cross, to be buried and then to rise on the third day. He was, he was born to die. Thomas Watson said, Christ went more willingly to the cross than we do to the throne of grace. He's, he's right about that. And Luke is careful to note that the common people weren't the ones primarily persecuting Jesus here at the cross. It was the rulers. It was the soldiers. But the people just stood by, watching it. It would seem that when the crowds went home after Jesus died there on the cross and the crowds left, that there was remorse over their not saying anything. We read in verse 48 of chapter 23 that the crowds went home beating their chest, 
It's a sign of, of remorse, of, of guilt. It's a sign of contrition. They, they should have said something, but now what? You know, would there be forgiveness for not doing what was right? Now we know that in Acts chapter 2, about 3,000 people came to be born again and to receive Christ. I believe Brother Nick mentioned it last week um, as well, but let's look there again together because I wanted to make another point about it. It's Acts chapter 2. Again, so it's right after John. If you hit Romans, you went too far. Acts 2, verse 22 and 23. And this is Peter speaking. He's giving a sermon. And there's many people in attendance. And he says, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. So being... Being that we know that it was about 3,000 people who received Christ, and you can go back to Luke now, uh, and were baptized, we'd be right to think that there was more than just the religious leaders in this crowd. Obviously, we consider the religious leaders to be bearing some fault for Jesus' crucifixion. Right? They, they spearheaded that whole thing, as we've been learning. But there's 3,000 people here that received Christ. There's so more than 3,000 people in attendance. And so there's no way that there's just religious leaders here. And Peter's speaking to them all this way. He's speaking to the men of Israel this way. And so we note two things. First, that Jesus was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. Nothing was happening outside of God's will during these events. God was in total control. He's the first cause in all things. And so he's the first cause in this event right here. It's his definite plan that was unfolding. And the second thing that we see is the means by which God accomplished his will. God's, God is the first cause. It was his will being done. This is the second cause. The people, freely of their own will, did what God's definite plan was. They crucified and killed Jesus by the hands of lawless men. That's what they had desired to do. Of course, you know, no one took his life from him. He laid it down willingly. But there is a sense in which people are to share the blame. It is our sin, the sin of those who believe that he went to the cross for. And there were people there who of their own will put him to death, either by taking action or by not taking action. There are some who simply stood by and watched the crucifixion. And they are just as responsible. That is what Peter is saying. That's what he would tell them at Pentecost. But the lovely thing is this. It wasn't too late for them. God is he's gracious and forgiving. And so Jesus, you know, on the cross, he even prayed that people would be forgiven. And I think what we see here in Acts 2 is his prayer, at least in part, being fulfilled well, right away. He prayed that the Father forgive them, for they do not know what they do. And here, about 3,000 people in Acts 2 receive forgiveness. That's what the cross is about. It's about forgiveness. He's there to forgive us. He's there so that all who rest and trust on Him alone for salvation, as He's offered in the gospel, can be forgiven and accepted and pardoned by God. And that should give us great hope, church. That whatever Jesus asks of the Father the Father is pleased to give him. 
Jesus ascended on high to the right hand of the Father where he lives to ever make intercession with us, we read in Hebrews. And his intercession, just like his cross work, will not fail. There is nothing that can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. The next reaction that we read is in, uh, in Luke 23 comes from the rulers, and then also from the Roman soldiers, and then also from one of the criminals that, are, that is up there crucified with him. And there's a lot of commonality between these three reactions. Um, not only that, there's also a cruel irony that exists in all of them as well. Uh, we read in verse 35 that the rulers scoff at him. In 36, the soldiers mock him. And in 39, the criminal rails at him. The word that the ESV translates as rails is the word for blasphemes even. So this criminal was blaspheming Christ there when he was on the cross. Each action, each reaction here is cruel and is meant for evil. Each method is meant to strike our Lord, to bring him low, to heap, to heap pain upon pain. But the irony is, despite the method of their messages, they speak the truth about him. But it's skeptical, or it's, it's doubt-ridden truth. They don't really say these things because they believe them to be true. They say these things to, to harm him, to hurt him. And so it turns out to be a cruel irony. The rulers go first in Luke's account, and, and this is especially ironic because of all the people, they should be the ones who know these things are actually true. They're the ones who are supposed to be teaching God's word to the people. They're supposed to be the shepherds of God's people within the Old Covenant. They're the ones who are responsible in that regard, and yet they have totally missed it. They are blind guides. And they say, and it's in verse 35, He saved others, let him save himself, if he is the Christ of God. You know, if he is the Messiah, if he is the chosen one, let him save himself. That's what they're saying to him. They're scoffing at him. Now, Christ, chosen one, those are, those are terms that Jesus typically didn't use in his public ministry. He didn't want to confuse people, you see, because people at this time, they had certain expectations about what the Messiah was going to be like. It was going to be a political, a, a revolutionary Messiah. And Jesus wanted to be crystal clear about who he was. And so he, he didn't really offer that fact that he was the Christ, the Messiah, uh, to the masses. That was you know, a mercy on his part. But with his own disciples, he was very clear about those things. You remember Jesus talking to Peter at one point in his ministry, and, and Jesus asked him, who do the people say that I am? And they tell him the answer. And then he says, well, who do you say that I am? And Peter speaks up, and he says, you are the Christ. You are the Son of God. And Jesus says, you're exactly right, Peter. That's right. That's who I am. And he tells him that the reason he knew that was because his Father in heaven revealed to him. It wasn't something that Peter just understood of his own accord. It was a, a faith-born revelation, a faith-filled response. But now, if Jesus didn't teach in his public ministry that he was the Christ and Messiah, but he focused that teaching with his disciples, how is it that the rulers of the people are now mocking him in this way? How is it that they are able to mock him with these claims? They, they should have known these claims, but they didn't. Well, they had an insider, right? We learned about Judas and his betrayal already. They'd been talking with him for some time, and this was part of their strategy to bring Christ down, uh, to, to raise him up as this Messiah, this revolutionary Messiah. And in their minds, that means that this person must be looking to overthrow the kingdom of Rome, and so that would earn him you know, death 
there by the way of the cross. And so they mock him with that. They say, if you're the Christ of God, if you're the Messiah, the anointed one, surely you can save yourself. I mean, after all, right, you came to save us. That's what the Messiah is supposed to do. Surely you're the Messiah. You can save yourself. And of course, they don't mean a word of that. They say, if he is the Christ of God. The reality, though, is that he is the chosen one. He is the anointed one. He is the one that the prophets promised. He is the one that the sum of Scripture is all about. But they don't believe that. And notice what he said at first. They're wanting to mock him, that he can't save himself, but notice what they do affirm. And it's like it doesn't even phase them. It's like they know it to be true, but they say it anyway. They say, he saved others. He did. He saved others. He's, He's the Savior on the tree. He healed and he raised people from the dead and he brought salvation to many leading up to these events that we're reading about this morning. And especially, that is what he's doing there on the cross. He's offering himself there to save. That's what he's doing. The reason that the Lord's anointed is on the cross is for forgiveness. That's what the cross accomplishes. The second offense comes from the soldiers. Hey, look down just a few verses. their, Their reaction comes in 36 and 37. First, we read that they gave him sour wine. It's it's wine vinegar in some translations. In Matthew and Luke's account, the giving of the wine seems to be a merciful thing. Like it's it's offered to him maybe like some sort of a a medicine, something to numb the pain, something like that. In John's account, Jesus announces that he's thirsty and then they, they give him this wine and then immediately after that he gives up the spirit. But this is a different account, obviously. There's no kindness in the actions of the soldiers here. They're mocking him for being a king. But the kind of wine that they're giving him is not the kind of wine that a king would drink. It's the soldier's wine. It's, it's sour. It's more like vinegar. And so they're mocking him with it. And then they speak, and they remove all doubt about their intentions. They say, if you're the king of the Jews, save yourself. You know, that these soldiers, they didn't have much in the way of theological education as far as, you know, what the Bible would say, what the scriptures would say. They didn't know much theology, Jewish theology, and they certainly hadn't been following Jesus around. How did they know to say that he was a king? Well, of course, you know, they're the ones who affixed that sign above the cross, that sign that reads uh, above Jesus that says, this is the king of the Jews. In crucifixions, it was normal to attach such a description above the, um, the criminal who was hanging on the cross. And you remember as well, I think, that when the charges were brought against Jesus to Pilate by the Sanhedrin, they charged him with claiming that he was the king of the Jews, hence implying that he was a revolutionary, making a counter-threat to Caesar, and therefore he deserved death for that. Um, And so that's attached above his head, this sign that says, the king of the Jews. And they begin to mock him. You know, if you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. And he was. He is the king of the Jews. That's exactly who is on the cross. Not only the king of the Jews, the the people of God, the church, but the king of the world, the one who holds all things together, The one in whom the Godhead dwells bodily, the fullness of the Godhead dwells bodily. The one who 
is the firstborn of creation, the Word who spoke the world into existence. That's who He is. And Luke wants you to know that because you won't understand the cross until you understand who Jesus is. That this is God dying in your place. And even His enemies, unwittingly, unbelievingly, cruelly, ironically, mockingly acknowledge exactly who He is. Thirdly, there's the railing, uh, the blasphemy of the criminal. Luke gives many details on them that the other gospel writers don't mention. Uh, all four gospel accounts mention that, that Jesus was numbered with the transgressors, but that's all that John says. And Matthew and Mark note that both criminals revile Jesus, that both criminals heal ins or hurl insults at him. And that they could, um, some commentators though, explain this by saying that when Matthew and Mark say uh, criminals, they use the plural, that it could be only one in view there, that that's a way of talking, that they could be mentioning only one of them was doing that, yet nevertheless they mention both. That doesn't seem likely to me. What seems more likely is that one of them had a change of heart there while on the cross. And we'll talk about him in a moment. First though, let's examine this, this taunt, this temptation from the criminal. Essentially, it's the same as the preceding taunts. He says, are you not the Christ? Aren't you the chosen one, Jesus? Why, why are you letting this happen? If you're the chosen one, what's, what's going on here? It shows um, that he's got a fundamentally wrong idea of what the Messiah had to do. For this criminal, for Jesus to be the Messiah, Jesus had to step down from the cross. But that's not what Jesus came to do. Peter, right after Peter confessed that Jesus was the Christ, Jesus told them in Luke 9, he says, And he strictly charged and commanded them to tell this to no one, saying, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed on the third day to be, and be raised. Or no, to be killed and then on the third day be raised. That's Luke 9, 21 to 22. So this criminal was totally out of the loop on what needed to happen. And further... He gives away his motivation. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. And so this criminal cries out, Save yourself and us. Is he really concerned with what's happening to Jesus here? He's not. He's doing what unrepentant sinners do very well. He's spinning the truth for his own benefit. It's it's truth that Jesus is the Christ, but that doesn't phase him at all. He's really only looking out for himself here. How many people today are like this man? You know, are you like this man? Or do you know someone that's like this man? People who only want from Jesus that which benefits themselves. That Jesus is merely a get-out-of-hell card. That he is the means to having a more comfortable life now that he's the means to a better marriage, to better behave children, that he's a means to having a little positivity in your life, and that, he's a, and that he's a means of doing good to others so that you might feel good about yourself. There's no true love for Christ in that attitude. There's no real desire to keep the law. There's no brokenness over sin, the sin of the world, but even more important, there's no real brokenness over your own, over their own sin. I suspect that there are many professing Christians in the world who are like this man. May it not be so of us, church. No, Jesus isn't the means to an end. He simply is the end. 
the end of yourself. As the Apostle Paul said, we have been crucified with Christ. And the life that we now live in the flesh, we live by faith in the Son of God who loved us and gave himself for us. And there's one other thing to note before we get into the response from the other criminal. There's something that we should see here that I think Luke would want us to see, and it should be very familiar to us. Here we are at the end of Jesus' earthly ministry, and it's ending in a very similar way to how it started. It nearly parallels the way in which it started. Here at the end, Jesus is confronted with three temptations to go against the will of God, to fail to be the better Adam, to fail at being the mediator of a, new, of a better covenant. At the beginning of Jesus' ministry, after being baptized, he was led away by the Spirit to be tempted by the devil. And the devil tempted him with three temptations. Each one of them was met with a response from our Lord in which he quoted scripture. Uh, whereas Adam failed to take God for his word in the garden, we see Christ defeating the devil with God's word. It's a, it's a picture of Christ's active obedience, the way in which he lived his life that might make him a sufficient substitute for us, that he might obtain righteousness for us. But then also, at the end of that encounter with the devil um, in, the, in the wilderness, Luke notes in, in Luke 14 that when this temptation had ended, that the devil said that he would um, depart from him until an opportune time. Well, that opportune time was here in this text that we read earlier, and Satan employs the very same tactic. This time, though, it's through fallen men that the temptations come, three of them. And they, and they state how, and they come at a time when Christ, humanly speaking, was at his lowest, his most vulnerable. He's on the brink of death. He's hanging there on the cross. And this time, against these three temptations to save himself, to come down from the cross, he doesn't say anything. He remains silent, like a lamb being led to slaughter. He mentions not a word. Here his obedience to the temptations is passive. It's his passive obedience. He's allowing all these things to come on him, and he gives no response. He's silent through them. And we know that Jesus said other things on the cross, but Luke is wanting us to see Christ's covenantal faithfulness from beginning to end. That he did everything that was required of God for us that we might be saved. He was actively obedient. He was passively obedient, taking upon himself the punishment that we deserve. But then God does something that brings Jesus to speaking in this episode. He makes alive the other criminal. And they're some of the sweetest words in all of Scripture. And when, we finally does, uh, when he finally does speak here. So let's read the response of the repentant criminal first, and then we'll look at Jesus' comments. So the, um, the response of the repentant criminal begins at verse 40. He says, But the other rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds, but this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. It's an, it's an amazing turnaround for our text this morning. The crowd gathered and stood by, watching. They didn't say this much of anything. We know that there was at least one apostle in the crowd even, yet there was no correction offered by anyone that we could possibly be aware of. And then, from the most unlikely place, 
not from a religious ruler, someone who knows the scriptures, someone who's familiar with what we call the Old Testament, but from a man condemned to die comes a rebuke. Mark's gospel tells us that Jesus was on the cross for six hours. He was, he was there on the cross for six hours from the beginning of being lifted up until when they took his body down. And so in, the span of, in that span of time, one of the criminals went from reviler to rebuker, from wicked to worshiper. He's heard the scoffing, he's heard the mocking, he's heard the, the railing, the blaspheming, he's even taken part in it himself. But now he rebukes the one on the other side of the Savior. It's a glorious conversion. J.C. Ryle in his commentary notes that these words should be printed in gold as they have been the salvation of countless thousands of men, that this story of the penitent thief is one of great hope to us, and it is. So, what happened? Where does this change come about from? Something has changed in this man. Something miraculous happened. Even though he started the day hurling insults at Jesus, suddenly now he's asking Jesus if he will remember him when he comes into his kingdom. Suddenly he's rebuking the other criminal and saying, you shouldn't be speaking to him like that. Don't, don't you have any fear of God in you? No, we're justly condemned, but this person is unjustly condemned. He doesn't deserve to be up here on this cross, but we do. Well, what happened? Suddenly, this man's life has changed, and we want to, we want to know what happened. Well, one answer that you could give is that he's an example of answered prayer to Jesus' prayer that we mentioned earlier from the cross where he said, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they do. Perhaps this is exhibit A of that, and Pentecost is exhibit B of that. And even if those things are true, I, I doubt that we could, we could get to the bottom and the depth of that prayer that Christ made there on the cross. Or you might say, well, the Holy Spirit is working in this man's heart. And you'd, you'd be right to say that. That's something that we know happens. That would be true. But if you asked me what caused this man to change, what did he see, what did he hear that made him change, I don't, I don't know, have the answer for that. I don't know what that is. Maybe he knew of Jesus uh, before this interaction. It could have been that he witnessed his ministry, some of his miracles, heard some of his teachings before he got into the trouble that he did, and that now in, in this time, under these circumstances, God has softened his heart in light of those things, and he he's has this changed disposition towards Christ. It could have been Jesus' words. It could have been his words of forgiveness to the very people who were doing this to him, that God might have used those words to soften his heart and to, to turn him from a rebel into one who worships. It could have been the way Jesus was experiencing his crucifixion, his character, his dignity. Not there, you know, asking to be pardoned. Not there you know, asking, you know, why me? This man is clearly impressed with both Jesus' character and his message. In fact, one of the big points that Luke is driving home to us in this passage is the integrity of Jesus' person and the testimony of his message, both of these things being confirmed here at the cross. And it's clear that this thief has an enormous amount of respect for the person of Jesus and for the substance of his message. But what were the specific things that brought about the change? I don't know. But there's a change here. It's clear. He's been born of the Spirit. He's been born again. He's believing now. 
of the new birth, Jesus told Nicodemus that in John 3 that it's like the wind. We hear its sound and it blows where, where it wishes, but we do not know from where it comes or to where it goes. And that, that's the case here. Ultimately, it's something that the Lord does, that he brings on and we can see the result of it. And this man's conversion is clear. He's a penitent man, a repentant man. We, we aren't to think of this person as being saved apart from the work of Christ, apart from repenting. We can see a change in this man. Matthew Henry writes, This malefactor, when he, when just ready to fall into the hands of Satan, was snatched as a brand out of the burning and made a monument of divine mercy and grace, and Satan was left to roar as a lion disappointed of his prey, this gives no encouragement to any to put off their repentance to their deathbed or to hope that they will find mercy. For though it is certain that true repentance is never too late, it is as certain that late repentance is seldom true. None can be sure that they will have the time to repent at death, but every man may be sure that he cannot have the advantages that this penitent thief had, whose case was altogether extraordinary. And we see here, though, that this man's repentance was true. You know, we shouldn't put off repentance. But one thing is at least certain with this account. Again, this thief wasn't saved apart from it. No one is. Many, many people look at this text and take from it, we can be saved at the final moment. That's true. We can be. Deathbed conversions, I think they do happen. Um, it's true. We should take that from the text, but we shouldn't stop there. There is clear repentance in this man. There is a change in him. And you see the change in three things in particular. God's purposes in election will stand. And they, they, they display themselves through these sorts of things. We see, first of all, the change in the rebuke that he administers to the other thief. Uh, to the other criminal, he says, Stop speaking to Jesus in this way. Stop blaspheming. Don't you have any fear of God in you? You know, suddenly, this man who was mocking Jesus at the beginning of the day is concerned about the soul of the other thief. All, all three of them are near death. The cross was certainly a death sentence. You hung there until you died. And when a person was on the cross, they were soon to be before the Lord. And for a person that's not right with God through faith, that should be a terrifying thing. Do you not fear God? He asks. He should. Now he's calling him to repentance. He's calling this other thief to repentance. He's pointing out his sin. There is no fear of God before his eyes, and there should be. Now, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, we read in the Bible. He's, he's defending the Lord now, and he's calling this other thief to repentance. It's clear there's been a work of the Lord in this man. Secondly, he admits his own guilt. And is that not remarkable? It's one thing to call another person to repentance at you know, the neglect of your own sin. But that's not the case with this thief. He's aware of his own sin, of his own offense. He's on a cross, dying a torturous death, and he says, I deserve this. I have no idea what this man actually did. Now, he's called a thief or a robber or a criminal, depending on the gospel account and the translation that you have, and that can mean a lot of different things. Whatever he did, whatever either of the criminals did, it was something that was punishable by death. We don't know the specifics of the crime, but whatever it was, he said, I deserve this. I'm guilty. He owns his own sin. 
You know, there are very few people that see their own sin that clearly. He says that they are justly being punished. So whatever it is that he did, he's aware of his sin and he knows that it was wrong. He's, he's welcoming the justice that um, God is bringing through the civil government. There on the cross, he's receiving his due reward of his deeds. He agrees with God about his sin. He's not making excuses. He's not trying to bring up other people to take the focus off of himself. He says, I'm being chastised and I deserve it. He's not blaming others. You know, it's amazing how we can do horrible things and make ourselves believe that it's, it's somebody, somebody else's fault. But this thief says guilty. I'm guilty as charged. I'm getting what I deserve. He sees his own sin clearly. He's not trying to get away from the punishment he deserves. It's the mark of a repentant man. Apart from it, we shouldn't even assume that a person is repentant. And then notice also, he confesses Jesus. He confesses Christ's innocence. Jesus is impeccable. He's the God-man. He never sinned. And by the way, Luke has now told us three times that Jesus is innocent. He told us first with Pilate, the Roman governor, who declared Jesus innocent. Remember, he washed his hands from the matter. And then Herod, the, the part Jew, he, part Jewish ruler and now friend of Pilate, he declared Jesus innocent. And now one of the thieves crucified on the cross has declared him innocent. But, you know, by the word of two or three witnesses, God's word will stand. Christ was innocent. This is one of the things that Luke is just pounding home. Jesus is not on the cross because he deserves to be there. He's on the cross for another reason. He's not on the cross because he's a criminal, because he's not a criminal. He's not on the cross because he's done something wicked, because he's never done anything wicked. He has never once sinned. He's there for another reason. He's atoning for sin. He's satisfying the wrath of God. This is all part of Luke driving that truth home. Jesus is innocent. He does not deserve to be punished in this way. He does not deserve to be on the cross. And now we read of the thief saying this. This, this thief is admitting this about Jesus. And so you see this confession, this confession of faith. This, this thief had never been more right in his whole life. Jesus never once sinned. He is innocent, not deserving of death. And then... He does what saved, repentant people do. He prays. He makes a petition to the Lord. And he says, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. The whole time up into this, the three persecutions that came before this converted thief, they've all been mocking Jesus for being a king, for being the Messiah, for being the anointed one. They've doubted it. But finally, one gets it. He is a king. More than that, he is the king, the king of kings. There is no one higher. There is no one greater. There is none that can challenge him or say to him, what have you done? He is the alpha and the omega. And this penitent thief knows it. He's not making this claim based on something in him, is he? He didn't say, like, hey, look, Jesus, I defended you. Now remember me when, when you go into your kingdom. He doesn't have an angle. He's repentant, and we're to be reminded of the parable that Jesus taught in Luke 18. There, a Pharisee appealed to, uh, to God on behalf of his good works. He prayed in a self-righteous manner, 
And Jesus said that he went to his home unjustified. But there was another person in that parable, a tax collector or a sinner, in other words, who couldn't even bring himself to look up to heaven. But he looked down low and he beat his chest and said, have, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. We see that same contrition here with the thief on the cross. And it draws our attention to something very, very important. He is looking outside of himself for his salvation. Dr. Albert Moeller, president of the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, said, every other religion in the world says your problem is on the outside and the solution is on the inside. But Christianity says, no, no, your problem is on the inside and the solution is outside of you. You know, every other religion compels a person to trust in themselves in one way or another. But for Christianity, our trust is in the object of our faith. Not in our faith itself, but the object of our faith in Christ. And this thief knows it. He's evidencing it. Jesus is about to die, and yet he knows he's not somehow finished. He's going to come into his kingdom. He tr his trust is in Christ, and so he asks Christ to remember him. That is his hope. Now, is it your hope? It's a question that only you could answer. And how is it that Christ responds then to this person, to a, to a person with this sort of hope? Well, he won't turn them away. You might remember the parable of the prodigal son. One of the things that Jesus taught us in that parable is that God will never turn away a repentant sinner. There's, there's no good works that we have to do. We don't have to clean ourselves up with our own strength and power and come to him. Ephesians 2 says that we are dead in our sins and that God makes us alive together with Christ. By grace we have been saved. And if there ever is a passage in Scripture that taught that we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, this is it. Now, Jesus responds to this petition by saying, Truly, I say to you, today you'll be with me in paradise. Paradise is... That takes us back to what the garden was before the fall. It was this paradise where man had fellowship with God, unbroken. But the paradise that he's speaking of is even a greater paradise. That paradise in the garden was a type of this true paradise of the new heavens and the new earth where there won't even be a possibility of transgressing, where we would have already partaken of the tree of life, the tree of life being Christ himself. And so there's no time for this thief um, to keep the law after Jesus says this great promise that truly you'll be with me today in paradise. You know, in fact, this thief has lived a life of transgression. He's already admitted it. There's no time for him to be baptized. There's no time for him to partake of the Lord's Supper. There's no time for him to serve in a food pantry or a homeless ministry. He can't be an elder or a deacon. He can't be a Sunday school teacher. He can't serve on a praise band. He can't honor his father and mother. He can't keep the Sabbath. What can this man do but trust Christ? Nothing. That's the same place we must be at, beloved. We bring nothing to God but the sin that nailed him to the cross. And Jesus says, truly, truly I say to you, now there's no doubt in his mind at this point. He's the God-man at the height of his humiliation, at the lowest point of his human life on the cross, and he's still king. He can make a promise like this from this point that only God can keep, because he is God. And what does he say? Today you'll be with me in paradise. In that one sentence, 
He altered the whole way that God's people looked at death up until this time. You know, death is the last enemy. It is the wages of sin. And even for those of us who believe in the gospel, in salvation, and in the life to come, the loss of a loved one is a hard thing to bear. We have bore that as a church many times over these past couple of years. There is, in some sense, still a sting that, that death leaves to us. And Jesus is saying, I want you to know that if you trust in me, the minute, the second, the nanosecond that you trust in me, that, that moment when you close your eyes to go to sleep in death, you'll be with me in paradise. With Jesus. Not in purgatory, waiting for others to pray for you. Not in soul sleep, but with Jesus. The moment the body dies. The saints would sing of this reality. We read in 1 Corinthians 15, 54-55. If you want to look there for yourself, it's right after Romans. There he says, at verse 54, he says, When the perishable puts on the imperishable, and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, and here's the, the lyrics that could be sung, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? Now J.C. Ryle, in his commentary on Luke, says, says about this, he says, let us remember these things when our believing friends fall asleep in Christ. We must not sorrow for them as those who have no hope. While we are sorrowing, they are rejoicing. While we are mourning and weeping at their funerals, they are safe and happy with the Lord. Let us remember these things if we are true Christians and looking forward to our own deaths. To die is a solemn thing, but if we die in the Lord, we need not doubt that our death will be gain. And this thief on the cross, all of his suffering, the torture, at the moment of his death, all of that would end. And he would be met with an eternal joy. He'd be with Christ forever. And so the question for us, friends, is have you repented like this thief? Does your repentance bear the same kind of marks of repentance that his does? Are you trusting in Christ alone? Have you repented from your sin and confessed faith in Christ and been converted? There's nothing more important to consider. And if you haven't, or if you're not sure, and you desire to now, then be like this thief. Don't put it off. Flee to Christ. He's not dead. He's ever living to make intercession for us. You can go to him now. Talk to one of the elders here at church. Talk to myself. Talk to anyone that you know that loves Jesus. May God grant you belief. Let's pray.